0: Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we've got co founders Jared Latch and Tim Bayer um, joining us um, from Spherical Media. Jared and Tim started Spherical Media way back in 2011, um, way back. Um, kind of pun intended as we talk about startups. Um, but Spiracle Media, as you'll hear today, is a video content agency built to tell stories. Um, and the cool thing about Tim and Jared, as you'll hear in the podcast, is they come out of media. Um, they both worked in the local media um, here in Charlotte from 2007 till they really kind of started um Rolling along with spherical media in two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, and kind of officially kicked it off in two thousand and eleven. So they've got, they've got the skill set and the history to kind of bring, um, bring this new age kind of uh, video um, material to companies. Um, the interesting thing that you'll find out in our conversation with Tim and Jared today is, though, they didn't initially start off in this direction, and it's probably a standard theme in our, our podcast interviews today. There's a there's a pivot point. Um, it goes back to a birthday cake. Um, so you'll hear the birthday cake in the story that talks about what the pivot was to take them from their original business model to, to what they're doing today. Um, they've recently exploring, or, or in the process of opening up an Austin, Texas office, um, and looking at ways to expand otherwise. Um, so, really cool podca- podcast with two, um, two folks that stepped out of an existing um, um, uh, job to explore starting their own, made the transition, and now have built a fantastic team that has been recognized two years in a row now. Now is one of the best places in Charlotte to work. So, certainly hope you enjoy listening to today's podcast with Jared and Tim from Spiritual Media. So, Tim and Jared, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Glad, um, glad to finally be sitting down here in this this nice new office of God.
1: Thanks for having us. Yeah, appreciate it. Excited to do it. Yeah, no, so as
0: I mentioned earlier, I like to throw out softball questions. So we're going to get started. Jared, we'll go over here. If you can, just give us that 60 to 122nd kind of background on who you are.
1: For sure. I, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, and from there went to school in eastern Ohio at a private school, Walsh University. Initially went there to play baseball, and then got into radio. And that started me down the path uh, with journalism. Got into local television for about nine years prior to starting spherical Media. And now have, have turned into a business owner. I've learned a lot in the business space, uh, mixing that with uh, communications and marketing background. And we have continued to grow. Thankfully, I still get to scratch my itch with Davidson men's basketball as the voice Uh, radio voice for the program and so right now it's just uh extremely busy i live uh, about a half hour up the road in harrisburg with my wife and two young boys so that's probably about the 60 second quick version
2: (laughs) Tim, yeah um so on my side very similar um went to boston college undergrad then went back to grad school got my master's in journalism at northwestern uh, after that, went down and worked at CNN Sports as an editor for a while. Worked uh, a 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift for about six months, which was pretty crazy. Uh, but still young enough that at 3 a.m. my friends were still out in Atlanta, so I'd get to go out and hang out with them for a couple of hours and then crash. But, um, but, yeah, jumped around, went. My first on-air gig for sports television was in Bangor, Maine. was there for just a little more than two years then went to D.C. Um, and was in D.C. at CBS Sports there for about six months before taking the job here in Charlotte at News 14, which is now Spectrum News.
0: Okay. When um, was that?
2: And that was 2006, June of 06, I came to Charlotte. Okay. And um, and so, yeah, so I've been here since. And we started Spiracle in March of 2011, and um, my role here at the company now I've taken on the business side of our relationship with Jared and I. We yin and yang pretty well together. And Jared runs our operations and our creative side, and I take the business side and the sales side. I guess I should add, you know, Tim came in 2006. I came in 2007
1: to work for WSOC TV and then had some time with WCNC as well. And, And prior to that, my hometown of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, I was on the air there for for four years, which was pretty cool. I was going to say that, but that's pretty neat. It was. You know, My grandparents at the time used to stay up. They were one of those uh, loyal viewers. Talked to my grandpap every night, 11.40, after the show, and he'd say about the same thing. Hey, they gave you uh, about three minutes. I was like, that's right, pap, Uh, three minutes. But that was a neat experience before jumping to Charlotte and coming down to this market.
0: So um, what brought you to Charlotte there then? just bigger market. Is that essentially what it is, That's the the career path?
1: It is, for sure. I remember when I started in Johnstown, I think they were around market 94. That's changed significantly over the last couple of years. But then jumping to Charlotte, it was a station that was owned by Cox Communications. So it was in that that family of stations. And I was very close to not having the opportunity. My contract was up after four years, uh, making a very low salary number. And I went to negotiate. And they said, yeah, hey, this, this looks good. And the news director took it to the general manager, came back with a low ball offer. And I was about to leave and go into PR with a hospital system, because there's not a lot of jobs in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, Old Steel Town. Uh, I was looking at that path. And then I got a call from Channel 9, said, we've, we've seen your stuff. We'd love to fly you down. And within two weeks, I had moved. So thankfully, that was what happened.
0: Oh, that's a pretty cool little story. So um, talk a little bit about what Spiracle is doing today, what, um, and then we'll circle back around. We'll talk a lot kind of about how it developed, how you met, et cetera, et cetera. But what is the business doing today?
2: So Spiracle Media is a video content agency built to tell stories. Um, we are a group of former journalists that have come together to uh, tell stories for businesses, nonprofits, and universities through video. And we've now expanded that offering to include aerial uh, with drones. Uh, We've also included live stream, and now, as we're sitting in our studio, audio podcasting. Um, So those are the four offerings now of Spiracle, but I would say that we're probably most known, and and what we do most is video.
0: So that's what the business started off at then. It started off as a um, video media, media, correct?
1: It actually didn't. You know, our initial idea with our backgrounds in sports television in dealing with athletes. Uh, we looked at what was happening at that point. And for us, we knew that we didn't want to work nights and weekends and holidays for our entire lives. And we, we enjoyed living in Charlotte. So we didn't want to go anywhere else and find a different opportunity. So our third co-founder was Bill Voth, who works for the Panthers right now. But I met him at Channel 9 in Charlotte as well. So we looked at what local media was doing, and we looked at social media and how athletes had a great opportunity to leverage their followers to craft their own message and become their own media outlet was essentially our tagline in those early days. So we, wanted, we we thought, hey, there's this great opportunity to work with athletes, not only at a professional level, but also at a college level, because people needed information and instruction on how to leverage and use social media well and how to avoid the pitfalls. So when we launched the business, In 2011, like Tim mentioned, we were working with professional athletes. That was our goal in the social media space. And thankfully, Stephen Curry was our first big name and partner in that endeavor on the athlete side. And then eventually, we would get into the business side as well. But it was on that social media front that got us going for, I'd say, the first two years of operations. Take a step back, then,
0: because um, we're back at the very beginning. How'd you how'd you meet? So I imagine the sports um, sports world is probably even in a town like Charlotte is probably a pretty small world. So it was natural for you all to come across each other.
2: It is a pretty tight. Uh, you end up covering all of the same stuff, and so you know we don't show up for a then bobcats now hornets um, you know press availability and we'd all be sitting there just waiting for can, them to finish Can break. we can we ever stop saying bobcats is that <laughs> going to be dropped I think we weekend? finally they did They were the bobcats then <laughs> they were then. But, uh, so I was being historically accurate. Uh, but, but, yeah, so we would, you know, sit outside waiting for practice to finish. And so we'd all sit around and talk and get to know each other. Um, Jared and I actually ended up moving into a house with three other guys that worked in media. So it was five guys in a six-bedroom house in Wesley Heights. Old school. Uh, so it was. It was like the old school house. We were in our mid-20s, um, and we all had Mondays and Tuesdays as our weekends. And so our neighbors weren't the biggest fans of Funday Mondays, um, but that's what we did a lot of times. And uh, and so that's you know really where we fostered our relationship. Like Jared said, Bill was our third co-founder when we started Spiracle, and he also worked in the sports media space as well. So um, so really we we hung around a lot. And you know the other piece of the puzzle is it wasn't that competitive on the sports side. So on the news side, it does feel a little bit like Ron Burgundy. You're going in the alleyway, snapping fingers and and doing everything and bricks killing people. But on the sports side, it's not that way at all. Uh, Everybody was pretty uh, willing to help each other out. Um, We all were covering the same thing. Nothing special was going to happen that you weren't going to know. And so it was was a pretty good community to be a part of.
0: I don't know for sure, but it seems like, the world of covering sports is super fun and super sexy. Um, So why jump out of it?
1: Well, part of that is real. Part of it is an illusion. Uh, The illusion is the hours, the drain, the low pay. Uh, You know, they're always asking for more, 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 and trying to take it instead of giving back. But when you looked at the actual job, it was was really neat to be a part of, you know, because the day-to-day, Thankfully, in sports, you were outside of the office quite a bit. When I came down, I was the number three at Channel 9 in a four-person sports department. So I was able to fill an anchor. I was able to get out and report and cover events. I remember my first year, I covered the Daytona 500. and I was there for a week doing live shots from, from Victory Lane. And I was at Lambeau Field for the Panthers against the Packers. So there was stuff like that that was really neat. The Masters, the Super Bowl before that. So those are the things you see in the, in the cool events that happened. And that part of it was fantastic. You know, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade that for anything. But the rest of it becomes draining and a little bit grueling when you have to deal with all the rest of the noise.
2: Yeah, and, and I'll say, you know, now being on the other side of it, um, I think I'd much rather be sitting in the stands drinking a beer than standing on the sidelines, running up and down, sweating you know, shooting a game. And, and that really hit me. My favorite event every year was to, co- to cover the uh, Coil Hollow Championship. It's changed names, obviously, now. Wells Fargo, all those. But that was always my favorite event. At the same time, those days were 7, 8 AM until 11, 11.30 PM. They were my longest days. And while I was having fun, and I was loving it, and I loved covering golf, um, it was draining. And so, you know, I can remember the first year after leaving uh TV and I went back to the tournament and I tried to walk under the ropes without a badge, uh not realizing that I wasn't credentialed anymore. And uh and somebody quickly stopped me and I was like, "Oh yeah, that's right. I can't do that anymore." Um but then at the same time then I went to the beer stand and grabbed a Bud Light and I was happy. So, you know, it it is a give and take, I think um but I think it, it was, it's, it was awesome for our 20s and early 30s. I think it checked a lot of boxes, but I think there was more. And then with the eventual idea of having families where we now have young kids, I don't think I could be doing that today if I had, if I had the family that I have now. So no
0: idea starts overnight, right? Every idea takes a while to develop. Um, you lived in the same house together. How did Spiracle, you know, how long did it take before first conversation to we're gonna go do this?
1: I think it was probably around two years. I think that we started to really get serious around 2009. Uh, Tim and I had always been trying to think outside of the box and be ahead and try to figure out what is next. You know, if we were going to stay in Charlotte, what did that look like? If we were to continue in TV, what does that look like? Or should we just go out and try to utilize our skill set and our connections and some of the resources and do something on our own and and craft our own future? And I I would say it was that two-year period where we looked at where we were, what were we doing that would be relevant, who were we connected to directly, and that's where we found the athlete space, you know, because we, we knew how it worked as far as building those relationships,
2: and we had some that we figured could get us started on that path. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, it was many nights just having a beer, you know, at the house talking about things. I had actually started a company with a buddy of mine um, while we were still in TV. And it was all about, you know, resume tapes for TV, and and how it was all moving online, and we could take this, you know, YouTube idea, and everybody could put their resume tape on YouTube, and then we could share them with news directors, and it could all be run through a website. Worked with this team in India, did the whole, I mean, did everything. Um, turned out we were probably about eight months to a year too early for adoption by news directors to use online video as their way of vetting talent. Um, shortly thereafter, that's how they always do it and now that's how it actually happens. Um, but I learned a lot in that process, in failing. and um, and so that I think also helped our discussions become more real because I had been down that road of you know screwing something up and losing some money and going down that road. and then you know I think we, we had a lot more, but you know, at the same time, we still had to learn a lot too. So, say, I say I'd agree with him. It was probably a two-year period. We March of '11, so yeah, it was probably a year and a half to two years.
0: Um, thanks for mentioning failure. Not many, <laughs> right? I mean, nobody talks about failure in sure. Charlotte, which is odd. Um, it's important. It is, and I mean, if, if it's done right and you learn from it, it's a very valuable tool. And so many people just they want to forget or don't include those things that didn't go right. And there's huge valuable lessons in it. So you're walking down. So you've you've gone down that path. You've had failure before. Um, you mentioned earlier that Jared, that, um, that you thought you had some contacts some athletes and stuff like that that you could lean on to get the business started. So how does a business model start so that you're comfortable with it? You were both kind of part-timing it or moonlighting it so to speak Um, but what else kind of got it up and running? What contacts made it hum?
1: Well I'll tell you what there was back in 2009 so we talked that that was maybe the point where we started to have these discussions I ended up at Channel 9 I had my job cut uh, because we were right at the the beginning or into the recession and so it was nothing i did they came to me the previous year and said hey we're going to have to cut the number three spot that's what corporate is telling us to do and i had to work with a news director and i could not tell anybody else in the sports department so there was always this this running joke that someday hey cox communications is going to come in here and just cut our whole sports department and they would say that not knowing that i was next uh, to go. So the following year they looked to offer me a position in Dayton, Ohio at WHIO and I turned it down because I wanted to be in Charlotte. Well what came out of that is that once you go through that process of losing your job, which is not fun, uh, there's there's grieving, there's anger, there's there's some positive stuff where you get to do things you didn't get to do for a long time uh, in that little break. But after about three months, I just went after it. And so I was reaching out to everybody I knew for freelance work, and I ended up doubling what I was making in the next year, but I was probably doubling how much I was working. But that really set us up, I think, for me to work on five to six different areas where I didn't have to rely on the money that was coming from Spiritual Media. So I could help push the idea and we could all get together and that allowed me to sort of stay free to an extent or make a window of time where we could go. And that allowed Tim and Bill to stay in their full time roles and we could look and say, okay, when we get to this point, then somebody else can jump in. So that allowed us to tier the process. But if I didn't have all that stuff working for me and I had to go back and get a full time job, because WCNC offered me the weekend job right around the time we started, and I turned that down as well thought that was crazy. Uh, Two years prior, if you would have told me, I would have turned that down, would have never happened. But I wanted to give it an opportunity. And I think that allowed us to ease our way into it. It allowed me to diversify the risk of thinking, am I really putting everything on the line? Because I've got a lot of different areas I can go to. If this fails, that wasn't the plan to fail. But I was sort of diversifying that risk.
2: Yeah, and I think um, at what was that? Five years into my job at Spirit, I mean at uh, News 14, uh, there was some um, probably treading water, and so I had freedom. You know, I could I could do my job really well, and still manage to have time to do other stuff. Um, it was you know rinse and repeat. I was on the schedule where you know okay it's now it's Panther season now it's NASCAR, and, uh, you know I knew what was coming, and so it wasn't that. Uh, taxing anymore. And so I think we were able to do that where we could divide and conquer. Um, you know, we talk about Steph as being the first client. He technically was our first main athlete client, he was our second client. Our first client was Euphoria Yogurts, which was a uh, yogurt store here, took on TCBY. They were growing like crazy. They were based out of Atlanta originally. And then they brought um, a person from here, Luke Tash, he is the CEO just so happened that Jared's now wife uh, was nannying for the Tashi family. And they talked about this need for social media. And they needed to really try and reach a young audience. And so they hired us. And they hired us for an exorbitant amount of money for three guys that didn't really have a company yet. Um, And it really gave us that running room to sort of get off the ground. Um, And then that summer, we got staff on board when he came back, he would just had finished his rookie season, and the NBA lockout was getting ready to start, and he was taking classes at Davidson to try and finish his degree, and so Bill went up there and met with him, and Steph was on board. So, um, so those couple relationships really gave us some runway, and allowed us to sort of figure it out. But those are those are big time contracts, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, both of those. For to your point, Tim for a company that didn't really know what it was doing yet. Um, So part luck, Mm -hmm. part skill, how did you get those first two, right? How does that go? How does that pitch work?
1: Well, we had the idea and we had the knowledge. I think the disconnect was how the heck are we going to do this effectively? The execution part, uh, we knew what we were talking about. We had grown with the trends as far as social media. We knew how it worked. We were students at that point to find out how can we make it work better, and then how can we apply it differently with these athletes. Uh, but it wasn't really rocket science at that point, you know, as as to how you were able to do these things. It was a big part of planning. It was cultivating content. It was repurposing that content. Those were all stuff that, that we were familiar with over the years. So I think we were really we were just selling us. Uh, the idea was already there. And then we just had to figure out the best way to execute it.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the, um, you know, we were hustling too, and and that made us a little different than maybe somebody that was already established. And at the same time, there really weren't that many established companies in social media at that point. I mean, 2011. You figure, you know, maybe there were two companies in Charlotte that were doing this, um, and so we were sort of early adopters, and that helped us in that. Conversation as well. So, because we had come from a media background, we had been dealing with it on a you know constant basis with athletes and with different outlets. And so now we knew how to talk about it to businesses, and um, and they just didn't have anybody else to go to, uh, in in some ways. And so we we were uniquely in the right spot at the right time. We caught a company that was growing like crazy. Um, it turned out they grew a little too fast, and so they too failed. Um, they ended up opening up too many locations at too many spots, and ran out of money, and uh, ran themselves thin. And so um, it was a good, I mean, it was really one of those things where we happened to get in situations where they were really good learning situations. The next contract that we got was, um, was a staffing company in uptown Charlotte. They're based out of Florida, but they, were, they have a huge office here. They were tired of the company that they were using for social media, and they decided to give us a, a chance. And we had multiple meetings with them. We had, you know, we didn't know whether they were going to take us or not. And they took a stab on us. And it, and like Jared said, a lot of it was they were taking a chance on us as people rather than us as a business at that point. Um, and I will tell you that that relationship, um, we did a lot of good things with them, but I learned the most. As a business person from them, because they took us under their wings, and talked to us about how to run a business. Um, met the CEO a couple of times. He was very open, and um, they were they were really really good to us. So let's
0: stay with the yogurt company really quick, and then yep. I want to circle back around the two aspects of that conversation. Um, they went under, obviously, from what you said. Um, were you still with them, or were you also working with them when they went under, um, or at that time kind of already passed?
1: No, it was it was later on. Uh, because we made the shift of video a couple years later. Okay. And then uh, the CEO moved out of there as well. I think he saw the writing on the wall and the way the ship was, was moving and sinking. So that stuff happened probably uh, a few years after we were done working with them. And when they were trying to go through the rapid expansion at a very high cost for each location, and they, they made a premium product. So all, all their costs were much higher. And then you had uh, a lot of other competitors Come into that space and really steal the market share. But it, yeah, it was a couple years later that they would they would go out of business.
0: So um, you saw failure there. Um, you saw failure, um, Tim, in your earlier business as well. And at the same time, you're getting kind of free mentoring from um, from the the company that you're you're working for, right? Not only are they paying you to come in and do work for them, they're also mentoring you on how to drive a business. Um, for people that kind of came into business from the new side of things, how helpful was that, right? I mean, <laughs> what, what were the key tidbits of information that they really fed folks that were coming at it from the media perspective and were, I can only assume, damn good at the media side of it, but the business operations side was just, um, gosh knows, give me anything, right? Just sprinkle something on me and make it grow.
2: Yeah, it was immeasurable. I mean, the. Uh, conversations that we would have over beers. They, we went on trips, uh, different locations, and you know we'd have dinners. Had dinner with the CFO one night, and I'll never forget this. Um, the three of us are at dinner in uptown. I think it was like McCormick and Schmick's or something. And we're sitting there, and you know we're talking about, it and they're like, you know, it's pretty cool that you guys started your own business. This is really, really good. I mean, you guys are taking a risk, and uh, and Bill at the time said, uh, you know, we really are risk averse. We don't really take risks. We're very, uh, we're very conservative. And the CFO goes, what are you talking about? You left your job to start a company where you have no salary. That is the biggest risk you could take. And the irony of it was, at the time, you know, while we laughed at Bill and we were like, oh, he was right. I mean, we weren't thinking of it as a risk. Um, you know, coming from TV while it was great and it was a paying job they didn 't pay you a ton of money, so we didn 't have to make a lot of money to m- get back to even you know, and so it felt like you know what why not let 's give this a run and um and I think that's that really gave us. An extra edge against maybe somebody else that was starting that really feels like you know either entitled or feel like they need X number of dollars to be able to just step out the door. We were very much scrappy, and and that made us um, able to do a lot more things than we probably ever would have been able to do. Yeah. Um, so uh,
0: starting a business isn't all um, um, all roses, right? So hmm. it has it has a few downsides along the way. Um, You pivoted away from your early business. Um, I can imagine there are probably a couple other downside stories that go to it. So what were some hurdles that you all had to clear early on and within the first couple of years of getting the business up off the ground?
2: Until the meeting with you and Bill and me?
1: Yes. Well, yeah, that was an early hurdle, and that was probably a year to two years.
3: Eight. In, mm-hmm.
1: because we were we were grinding it out, and Tim was still working. Uh, Bill actually surprised us one night, I think, prior to this. It wasn't part of the plan for him to bow out this early from his job at Channel 9. He came over to the house one night and said, hey, guys, I just quit my job. And we thought, well that's it's not good, Bill. Congratulations, but that's not part of the plan. Go go get it back. Yes. Sir. Can you can call you right now or just go back to the station, see if they can hire you for at least uh, three more months? But he dropped that bombshell on us and at that point we were a little bit shocked, but we knew we had to we had to push forward. But what happened was that, that Bill and I then were going full go in the business and, and Tim was still working at News 14, so he had all those responsibilities, and and there was a point where we were waiting on Tim to to get some things done, and they weren't they weren't getting done, and this this happened pretty consistently, so we we had a meeting at uh, Caribou Coffee, I think.
2: Yeah, on, no longer exists. now e- Mayo Bird. Yes,
1: on East Boulevard, and so we've switched from beer to <laughs> coffee to coffee, yeah, yeah. Beer. yes. Got serious. Probably about a 9.45, 10 a.m. meeting because we didn't get up very early. But we just came to Tim and said, hey, we need you to either be in or out. And we can't have this neutral feeling where we don't know if something's going to get done. And I'll let Tim fill in his his reaction. But, I mean, we were feeling pressure and stress, uh, Bill and I going. And and Tim was
2: as well. But we just need to make sure that, that he was full go on board. Yeah, I mean, I felt it in my gut. You know, it was this thing that I had helped start and had been part of growing and felt like, oh, my God, it's getting pulled out from under me because I'm not holding or pulling my weight. Um, and so the the way they went about it was the right way. They were open. They were honest. They were telling me what their feelings were. And they were right. I mean, I hadn't been as, um, you know, Effective as I should have been, and so it really gave me that you know come to Jesus moment of okay, are you doing this or not? And I really had to have that soul search, and uh, and then shortly thereafter, maybe a month or two, um, I left News 14 and went full time. So that was a big big pivot for me.
0: Moonlighting is such a critical aspect of what many entrepreneurs do. Right, they stay. You know, we always talk about it here. They stay in the ivory towers, and then at some point in time, they realize that you know they've got an idea. They work the idea, then it becomes successful enough that they they leave from. Um, yours is unique because you had some co-founders that were kind of pulling some weight while you were still there. Sure. Looking back on it, would you have would you have pulled the trigger earlier at this point in time? Um, or did it just go as it needed to go? And, and besides your co-founder sitting you down and telling you you got to get on board, um, is there another way to look at it and say um, it's time to give up the moonlight? It's time to hop in this full time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I so I don't think I would change it. I think um, I think the way it went was the way it should have gone. Um, I think just like Jared was talking about. We had this thought process in our mind of you know hitting milestones in order to free up enough money to cover three salaries, and um, Bill had sort of thrown that in a loop with the early resignation. But um, but then you know I think I needed that sort of gut check from them, and I think that helped. You know it actually. It made me realize how much I wanted Spiracle. you know, and I don't think I would have known that if that if the risk of it being taken away from me wasn't there. I think I could have taken it for granted that hey, we're making a little bit of money over here, we found success, we've had these good contracts, like things that probably shouldn't have happened were happening. Um, so we were getting lucky in some ways. We did have good contacts in the Charlotte area because of our world that we had been in, um, and so I think. I think there was a part of me that was probably taking that for granted, and was enjoying the idea of sort of keeping my toe in both worlds. Um, but I'm so glad that we had that conversation because it ended up taking me to the full-time space, and you know I haven't looked back at all. Um, I've never wanted to go back. And and then you fast forward. I know you, you talked
1: about pivotal moments or adversity, failures. When we had a stable of a couple strong retainer clients and we had a couple different athletes on board we were at three employees we had just hired our fourth uh david who's our chief creative officer yep three founders one employee right yes at that point yeah and then eventually uh bill we'd part ways with bill which i'm sure we we will touch on but prior to that happening uh we brought we brought david on board and again he he ended up just taking us to a whole new level and would throw us in the video direction, but we met with our our largest retainer client at the time, and we went to their office. They wanted to to get everybody together. It was an anniversary, uh, probably three year anniversary, I would say, on on working together. Maybe yeah, even I think maybe even. It was even Brian's two. birthday. Oh, that that was the reason for the yeah, cake. Yeah. So it was uh, one of the key contacts over there. His birthday, so we took a birthday cake in. And we set the cake on the table. Everybody sits down. First thing he says, as he looks at us, "We're going to go in a different direction." <laughs> and so that that right there threw us for a loop. I looked over at David. His first, he's in the door for less it's than a week. Very first meeting. And thought, "Uh-oh." <laughs> but this was something that we uh, Tim really really picked it up at that point. But it was not a good christening for Dave, the first week on the job.
2: Yeah, he, he, he
0: would say Tim picked it up. <clears throat> Do you mean you picked up, I picked
1: the,
2: picked up cake the cake and cake walked, and walked out. out? No, we yeah, left, yeah, we we left, left the, cake. the cake. We joked and, that they um, still owe us to this day. Yeah, so I, um, we walked down to that meeting, and the guys were a little bit down, and rightfully so. And I said, listen, this is a good thing. We're going to figure this out. It'll be for, in the long term, I think this is going to be a much better direction for us. Let's go celebrate. And they're all thinking, what? What are we celebrating? I'm like, come on, let's go. At the time, we went to Blue, the nice restaurant uptown, had a really nice lunch, um, and got a chance to sort of like wash it off of us. Um, And I think it helped clear our heads, because at that time, Bill was feeling the urge to go back into the journalism space. And this decision by them freed him up, because, It was our biggest social client. Bill was running our social side. And so at that point, his needs and his need to be involved as much went down. And so it allowed him and freed him up to make that decision. It freed us up to pivot the company away from social media, websites, and that space to only video. Um, And that one meeting with a birthday cake that to a guy that ended up firing us changed the complete trajectory of our company. And we are where we are today because of that meeting.
0: That's a, um, that's a cool story. <laughs> um, I love the fact that you took a birthday cake and got fired. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think i heard that one yet. <laughs> um, but it sounds so easy. Did Did Bill walk out the next day, or how long, <laughs> long did it take to kind of transition the company into the new place?
1: No, it was probably another... 15 months at least, uh, we got to a point where he was still hanging in. He was still doing some things. He launched blackandbluereview.com, which was an independent Carolina Panthers website, was doing really well and building that out, did a great job as a one-man show. And we got to a point, Tim and I, where we had to start looking and making real business decisions in terms of insurance benefits, you know, retirement plans, different things that needed everybody to come in as a decision maker and put their stamp on it. And there was no longer an option to straddle the line uh, because we, the those decisions continued to get more real and we needed him. So it was after that that we had to have the talk with him to decide, hey, we know you don't have the bandwidth. This is the direction we're going. Do you want to stay in or do you, do you want to move on in a, in a different direction? And so it was a really friendly split. There's no hard feelings between any of us. Uh, we bought them out at that point with our little equation formula that was in our articles of uh, incorporation. And we went on our way. And we changed the direction of spherical Media as we know it today.
2: And so, again, it was an iron, ironic conversation for me because this time I was on the other side um so we had had that two on one conversation previously with me on the outside looking in and this time it was bill and instead of you know choosing to go more in he chose to go uh on his way and what we had done over those like 10 to 15 months that jared's talking about we had ramped down his his need to do stuff we had taken down some of his um um, responsibilities, and, and so we had gone that direction to let him have that freedom. We helped with building uh, Black and Blue Review. We helped any way we could. We hosted the site. We did you know any of that kind of stuff, because we felt like it was the right thing, and it was something that he wanted to do. It ended up that um, he ended up getting hired by the Panthers uh, and now is their head of digital. And um, it's all worked out really well for all of us, I think. Um, and so, like Jared said, there are no hard feelings to this day, and I think I think a big part of that was open communication. I
1: think some other irony real quick was that when we were looking at who our next hires uh, would potentially be, and we thought okay let's let's keep going potentially with some of our social media clients, maybe we can." keep some funds coming in the door in that way and we can build out the video side and bill used to say no drones video go that direction so it was interesting he was always driving the the digital on the social media side but he knew as well that the path was no longer social media for us and that the video could put us at a better place and he sort of nudged us in that direction as well that was his endorsement to know i don't Let's not hire social media. Let's let's hire somebody for video, and that's what we did.
0: So you had a couple of clients on the old school side of things, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then, how did you start bringing on, or how quickly were you able to ramp up that media side and start to um, to drop the old business behind?
1: I think it was a gradual building up of that portfolio. We used a lot of existing partnerships for that as well. So you started going back to those We did. Charlotte Motor Speedway was one in the early days where we had recurring work and we could get things done. There were other things that I would say acted in more of a freelance capacity rather than a project base. And so we used some of that other stuff around the edges. And slowly, uh, we got more and more business. Uh, Everfi, who's our biggest partner right now, was was early as well, and uh, that really, I think, that partnership swung us into that direction and allowed us a forum and an opportunity to show what we could do and to continue to grow. And we had cool opportunities with them early on. I'd say they, I mean, they were they're our biggest now, but they were our biggest opportunity at that point.
2: Yeah, I think that EverFi really helped us build out that video side like we wouldn't have ever been able to. Um, they gave us freedom to you know, travel and tell these stories of, of the impact of what they were doing. They understood and they got it a lot earlier than companies did uh, about using video and the power of video when they would walk into a sales meeting instead of one of their sales guys going through a deck about the impact that they're having they could literally play a two minute video and the people would be like, where do I sign? And that power of being able to have that, um, they got it and they still get it to this day. And it's, it's one of the best partnerships I mean we could ever have. I think we, we got very fortunate in that way. Again, that was a contact through my brother, the CEO that started the company was a friend and, um, and he was looking to do video. He, he understood why it was important and, and, you know, we learned together. We sort of grew together, and we have over the years now. I mean, we've been working for them probably six six years now at least. And, Jack, I don't want to discount Jackrabbit Tech either in the early
1: days. That's when I used to travel around and put lights together, which was really <laughs> interesting. Box lights. I'd go through. I was a solo show at that point in California, Canada, where I got detained one time and thankfully made it out. But there were a couple in that early circle that really helped us, allowed us an opportunity to go in and try new things and diversify the type of content that we were producing.
0: Mark Mahoney over at Jackrabbit. Yeah, exactly. Good friend. He'll listen to my podcast and he'll tell me whether or not um, if I agree out loud I shouldn't. He told me that like six months ago. But <laughs> every time I agree out loud, it's like I slap myself in the forehead. So, anyways, great, it's um, great mentor to have or a great company to be able to work with. Totally. Um, what's the addressable market of video and versus where it is today? How much growth is there for y'all in the video marketplace in the U.S.? And I guess nothing limits you to our borders anymore either, right? You can go outside of the U.S. But... And where are we on the curve, right? I mean, it's it's a huge market, and we're really early on the curve, aren't we?
2: Yes. And um, it's funny. When you ask that question, I think about Shark Tank and how they yell at everybody every time they talk about the total addressable market. <laughs> and they're like, there's $2 billion in this industry. And uh, and they always – Mark Cuban is always really on, on people for that. But I, I think – I think you're right. I think it's early in the curve. I think the stat we always hear, um, you know, by 2021, 80% of all internet traffic is going to be video. Um, it is an enormous piece of the pie now. And I think that we're only going to get better as far as what is out there and being used and how to use video. I think that there are going to be new ways and new developments, but at its core, I think it's still going to be video. and The reason that we feel like we're in a good spot as our company, in that, you know, as those new toys and tools and all those things come out, we're going to bring them into the mix. But at the baseline, we're still telling stories. And that's where we try and differentiate is that, you know, in a company that is out there that's doing video, that's just sending you video people to come out and just point and click and shoot and capture, Um, whereas our people are out there trying to dig and find a story. And it sounds cheesy, maybe, but it there is a difference in how that person approaches what they're doing. And um, so I think no matter what tricks or tools or anything that come along, I think that idea of sharing a story is still going to resonate with people. And now it's just through video. Whereas it obviously in back in the histories, it used to be oral tradition, and you know stories that were told from one family to the next. Well, now we can do it at scale. And and being able to do that with video, I think, just is, is an amazing opportunity.
3: Well,
0: so 80% of internet traffic in 2021 will be um, will be video, but at the same time, it's a it's an early market, which means you've got to to your point, what you said earlier, you've got a lot of ones and twosies type shops, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and y'all've grown through that. Um, so, does the market expand, and we end up with? 10, 20, 30 different national firms that are doing doing things rather than thousands of different onesies, twosies over the course of the next couple, five years, if you will?
1: I think you'll see that expansion. I think that a lot of those smaller uh, agencies or teams will go away uh, because they're gonna have to compete with uh, bigger agencies, but what will be interesting to see and, and you look at the trend of quality for a while, you know, people are like, well, the quality doesn't matter as much. In my mind, as it becomes more saturated and everybody does video, what's your differentiation again? I think it goes back to quality and doing it well and telling a story and really putting something out there that is character-driven and emotional uh, for your audience. So I, th- I think it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out uh, because you do have a lot of people doing it, but a lot of people are not doing it well. I know when Tim and I look uh, even for job candidates and things like that, and, and we look at different companies, there's still only a, a small percentage at the top that do really good work. And still those will be, will be missing an element. They might shoot something really well, but their storytelling is, is not very strong. And for us, we've been built intentionally with former journalists who were in the game but that can shoot cinematically that can think and are adaptable and can go out and, like tim said go out and find the story and ask the right questions and i don't think you're going to find that wealth of ability in a lot of different places and and that's where we're we're really hanging our hat on that coupled with being aware of the new technologies and the applications and the platforms but keeping story at the center And that's the way that we're going forward and the path we're looking to take. But those people are essential that have to have a unique skill set, not to just go shoot, but to be able to tell, be be a storyteller in the field, as well as in your assemble and the edit. And that's that's a skill set that's hard to find to do at a high level.
2: And I think going back to the question of five mega companies or something along those lines, it's going to be hard because video is right now, and and it might change with technology, but right now you still have to have boots on the ground. And so it is a hard company to scale uh, the way you would, you know, a SaaS company or something along those lines where you can edge people out. Um, And so there might be a couple of them that happen, but uh, when you get to that scale, then it's hard to keep quality. And so there is a yin and a yang that's going on there, I think, and that's where it's a little tough. Um, there's a company out in California that's doing a pretty good job of scale, um, but they aren't doing a great job of quality. And so they have stringers all over the country. And for a very reasonable rate, you can you know, quickly jump in and get a video shot and done for you. But whether it's going to live up to the quality that you're going to want, you're getting what you're paying for. And so they've done a really good job, though, I think, of casting a net to cover the country. Um, but that is what you run into with video.
0: Y'all aren't sitting idly by either, right? So we've got an office here in Charlotte as we speak, and we're either in the process or have just recently opened up a footprint in Texas. Is it Austin as well? Mm-hmm. So what's that? what was that decision-making process to hey? Not only we're going to expand, we're going to expand halfway across the country.
1: Well, there was twofold. I think uh, the initial idea for Tim was logistical, uh, and then market driven. We say logistical because we've done quite a bit of work on the West Coast, and when our teams travel there, we lose we lose a day on each side, you know, getting them there and back. So we looked at Austin as a straight shot where you could you could save some time on the travel. And then second, you know, looking at where Austin sits right now, I think that the most recent thing I looked at, they were either five or six uh, in the fastest growing cities in the country. And what's happening is a lot of money from Silicon Valley and venture capital out of California is moving to Texas because there's no sales tax. So they are saving a boatload of money. And what they're doing as a result is they're cultivating this big tech scene with a lot of startups. And it's different in a startup sense in maybe other parts of the country because these tech companies have funding behind them. And they need to promote immediately because they need to diversify or differentiate themselves as well. So I think those two things were the biggest that we looked at initially as the catalyst for the decision.
2: Yeah, and then when we're considering other markets, um, we also identified that we want mid-markets with growing sectors. So. We don't really want to go open an office in Atlanta. There's a lot of competition there. It's a huge city. It's not really. We can play to Atlanta from Charlotte, Um, but cities like Nashville, Austin, um, maybe even like a Denver, those or Salt Lake City is another one that's growing rapidly. So these growing mid-level cities that have um, a need and an industry, you know, here in Charlotte, we obviously. We talk ivory towers. We have the financial businesses. We work with a number of financial partners. Um, and that is a really good space for us to be involved in. Now as the tech scene grows here, I think there's an opportunity there as well. Um, but Austin really looked to us as you know, a really strong city that has a lot going on. It has a former film scene. And so when we'd go down there and meet with people, You know, there are talented people down there, but there really aren't concerted companies down there that are telling stories for businesses. And so a lot of it, they're tapping into the former film people and hiring them as one-offs and one-man bands to shoot different videos for them. And now as that economy down there grows, I think there's a real opportunity for us. I
1: think we see a little bit of Charlotte in that as well. Charlotte is a place that we we love and that we didn't want to leave. And we have essentially been able to grow... As the city grows. And what you don't lose in a city of this size is the, and Tim loves this word, the relational aspect <laughs> of, of meeting people and having real partnerships. And that's a big part of our business as well. So when you look at those mid level cities, I like to think that the same relationship driven approach will work. Now, if you go to a New York City or an Atlanta, you're jammed in there with a bunch of people. They've got a much faster pace. They they think they have their identity figured out, but the other cities are growing, and they're trying to figure out what that identity is. And so we look at those as an opportunity to come alongside and just find more opportunity. So you talked earlier
0: about the you know the yogurt company failed. Um, Bill said that you weren't taking a risk. Um, there's no question you take a risk when you. St- decide to expand and put a new city on the map, right? How did that conversation go? Um, Same thing, it seems like your your communication back and forth with each other as co-founders seems seamless. I'm sure there's probably been times where it hasn't been perfect, Um, but how was the conversation to, we're gonna do this and this is how we're gonna do it, and there's risk on the table, but we're comfortable with it because this is what we're doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the number one thing um, when we started this conversation was tabling risk and figuring out you know, how do we prevent ourselves from sinking a bunch of money into something that just isn't worth it. Um, and so the way we've done it is we are rolling out that market Um, slowly and so we've put our toe in the water our sales guy from here is going down there once a month doing two to three day trips starting networking starting those relationships and building that out we're servicing any of those projects that we get right now from Charlotte sending them down to Austin and doing those projects for now um, once we feel like we have enough of a foothold there, similarly to how we straddled when we were leaving TV to come into this, once we feel like we have enough fo- enough of a foothold there, we'll base a team there. Um, and we've started the conversation with some some of our members here. We have one team member that's willing to make the move. He would lead up the office down there, and then we'd probably hire locally to fill out that office. But It is baby steps, very much so, and it is tabling that risk because there is a big risk that's there. Right now, as it stands, if we find that, you know, Austin isn't the market we thought it was and it isn't the way we wanted it to be, we can pull out with, you know, a few flights that we lost and some meetings, and it's not that bad. Um, So that's really, we did approach it that way. It wasn't uh, just a haphazard brick-and-mortar, open a new office, all that kind of stuff. We'll probably co-work initially. Um, All those kind of things that you can do now that allow you to eliminate a lot of those, those risk plays.
1: And I think that philosophy that when we talk about looking at a new market and potentially going, that's sort of the philosophy that we have taken on as a growth strategy in general from the beginning, whether that was unintentional or not, or I should say intentional, or not was just to grow organically. We've bootstrapped since the beginning. We used those resources in the early days to borrow cameras and and lighting until we could actually buy our own camera. And then we we grew that. And then we grew our people. But we looked at each stage of the game that we, we were assuming a lot of risk in the process. But if we could mitigate those decisions and have it work organically and tier up is sort of the way that we have found our success in that regard. So we take it into looking at potential new markets. We take on that philosophy when we're looking at building out service offerings and such. It's it's that slow build. Do we still take chances? Absolutely. Every day in in some way. Just some are larger than others. But we wanna we wanna look at it, make sure that it makes sense, and then once we decide we, we want to go after it.
0: You talk to different entrepreneurs in different scenes on a regular, or I talk to entrepreneurs and y'all do as well, Um, if you can not raise capital, that means, you know, a good thing, right? Now, for, you know, software as a service business to raise capital to scale, that's a positive thing as well. Do you see yourself having to raise capital and expand into markets in the future? Or do you think it's one of those things that you'll expand as, um, you'll go as you grow?
2: We've talked about it and we've definitely looked at it. I think um, we have made a conscious decision not to raise money uh, so far. Um, what we're hoping is through Austin and finding success in the model that we build, in building out another market and being able to, you know, it's almost like the old uh, airline spoke and wheel model. Um, if we're able to find efficiencies by still having our central office in Charlotte, but having teams based in these different markets that can quickly get to different areas that we're going to service, if we decide that we want to replicate that at, at scale, then that's where we'll probably look at it. Um, but until then, I think we're very happy in, in you know, building as we grow. So you'll see a
0: lot of companies raise a small sum of money like $250,000, $500,000 or something like that to go test their theory. Um, so in essence, in, in, in testing that theory, because it's a theory and it's not proven out yet, they've got to give up a fair amount of equity in order to do it. Right. Which are the approach that y'all are taking is we want to test out our theory, but we're going to pay for it ourselves. Exactly. Um, and then if that theory works, we're going to go out and we'll potentially raise money. We'll just do it on terms that are a little bit more favorable from us because we funded the
2: test. Yep. Exactly. Right. Okay. And I think that's where we'll find success that we can exact point to those success metrics and why it's going to work and therefore that money is much more secure when somebody does invest. Fair enough. Um,
0: what do you see of the startup community in Charlotte? I mean, you are part of it as, as well, right? You all see people in it. Um, you're a young company. Um, you hit some key metrics, right? You've grown at a fast pace. You, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, two years in a row, uh, best company to work for, right, two years in a row? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you get the accolades, you see people, you bump shoulders, you have the relational. Um,
2: <laughs> it's a great word. Don't yeah. use it. Yeah. I'm glad you were able to reemphasize
0: <laughs> that. I had to drop it in there, right? I mean, it's <laughs> such a key component of the conversation. Um, but how do you all see this and Austin? I mean, how does um, how does the startup community look and feel to you all here in Charlotte?
1: Well, I think the the startup community in general, and I think this goes back to there's a correlation between our sports days, where people were open with each other, willing to help out. I find that same vibe, uh, not only here in Charlotte, but when we made the trip to Austin. A lot of people that have done it are building companies, are in a fast-paced environment. They have to make quick decisions. They're all open to helping each other, unless you're, uh, well, even people that are in the same field as us. I mean, we meet with people in, in video all the time. And while some of them might be competitors, most are not. So we are always looking to learn and grow and help. And that's the biggest thing that I find in the entrepreneurial community, uh, whether you're doing really well or not. People are open to the conversation, they want to connect, they want to learn from each other. And that's been pivotal for, for Tim and I, is that continued learning aspect and being a part of EO Charlotte and another group, II Charlotte. You know, there's different areas where we're there not to get business if that happens, great. But the knowledge share part of that and learning through these, these growth challenges that are are the same in every situation, just the magnitude is, is varied. And, you know, that is the biggest thing I see is the openness of that community.
2: Yeah, and I'd say, you know, um, Charlotte is interesting in that, I feel like for a while we were trying to fake it till we make it as a startup scene. You know, I felt like um, there were the networking events and the you know all these kind of things that you're, you feel like you're supposed to have because you have a startup scene. Um, but the majority of the businesses that I came across uh, or do come across are lifestyle businesses or businesses that are built to make a profit. They're not built. To scale extremely crazy, and you know, be rocket ships, and bring on all this this uh, investor money, and I found that to be the case a lot in Charlotte, um, and that, and in a lot of ways, I like that. Uh, I like that there are businesses that are trying to end up with profit at the end of the day, and and not playing the game of. You know, our value is in our user base. And, and that's the, that's another whole sector. And I think that sector is starting to show up a little bit, but it's not totally here. Um, and so I, I, I would just say that I feel like maybe the startup scene in Charlotte doesn't get enough respect because it's not the type of businesses that get covered by media.
0: Yeah. See, you didn't raise money at the beginning, right? You didn't raise money in 2011 when you started Spiritual Media. And don't take this the wrong way. I like both of you a lot. <laughs> um, it, is, it is unlikely had you wanted to raise money in 2011 to build the business that somebody would have invested in it. Correct. Um, mm-hmm. They would have been wrong. Um, what, what made y'all right
1: and them wrong? I think it was years and years of experience. I always say that we were in the right place at the right time. But when you look at the technology and the trends in social media, we grew up with that. Uh, in, in terms of our professional life, we were armed with this knowledge. And we were armed with the ability to deploy that knowledge in, in the way that we were doing it. It wasn't something new that we had to learn. Uh, we had done it. It had become a, a second part of us as far as uh, the nature of who we were and we adapted. And change was not a problem to us because it was so rapid. I look at that as a key where they would have been wrong in just saying, hey, you guys can't make this work. I think we had a lot larger knowledge base than we ever realized. And there were some things that we, we still take for granted that we don't even think about that we have because we were part of that trend and we lived it and we did it at a pretty high level. And that helped us in the beginning to establish this foundation of which we could
2: rise from. I also think we would have felt like we were more in a box um, if we had raised and taken somebody else's money. Um, That ability to change from a social media web company to a video company uh, probably wouldn't have happened as easily. Because if I'm somebody that put in dollars to a social media company, and these guys come to me and say, well, we're going to video, I'm not going to be really happy. And so. I think we would have felt more boxed in and less free to make the changes that we are. So if we had stayed as a social media company, their bet probably wouldn't have been wrong if they hadn't invested in us. Because I think um, we saw the writing on the wall, and that's why we made the pivot we did. Um, And I don't know if we would have if we had had uh, capital that we had taken on. I would think that would be pretty
1: hard. Obviously, we haven't done it. But in the scenario of you trying to grow something, right, and then having this other influence telling you, no, no, it's it's going to go this way, because we have vested stake in this company now. Is it really yours? I look at that as a a music, musician who is in, you know, trying to they, they create this persona, and it, it's not true to who they are anymore. They they lose, and it'd be the same scenario I would think in a lot of cases. And, unless you're making millions of dollars. And I guess you're like, OK, that was the right decision. I'm, <laughs> I'm fine. But if you're trying to grow something and you put that harness on, I would think that'd be tough.
0: I'll yeah. uh, kind of wrap up with one question. I was, uh, I was on the way over here today, and I'd heard about it a month or so ago. Um, but apparently, California signed into law a new bill yesterday or the day before or something like that with college athletes profiting off their persona when you hear that, do you think you were eight years too early or do you think you're going to jump straight back into it?
2: Oh man. And you know, it's funny. I have mixed feelings on this one. I think there's the, the capitalist in me is excited about the fact that these kids can make money on what they uh, have earned. Um, But the NCAA athlete fan of me doesn't want to see it all go away. So, I don't know. I don't think we're late. I think I think it's great. I think you know. I think um, I don't look back with regrets ever. And and I don't know if that's stubbornness or naivete or whatever it is. But I think that we're at the right time when we're at the right time. And I will never forget (laughs) the first time we went up and met with Steph's agent to re up our contract. And we went into Octagon in up in Virginia, and. I didn't know what the heck I was talking about, you know, and I I was totally making it up to this guy, and I knew that what we were doing was providing value for Steph. He was getting covered as one of the best social media athletes in the NBA at the time, um, and so I knew what we were doing was right, but I didn't know the first thing about my negotiation with that guy. And I will uh, never forget that feeling of walking in there not knowing what the outcome was going to be. And I think today, if a college kid has to go in and talk to an agent about negotiating you know, the rights to their jerseys and everything, I think it's going to be a tough situation. And I think it's going to be a really hard thing to say 17 and 18-year-olds are now having to be involved in these business decisions.
0: Well, you, you might not have known where you were <laughs> going in that negotiation or that process, but over the course of today and obviously you know our get-together beforehand, it's pretty clear you've got a really clear idea of where the company is now, um, where it's going. You've built something that's really neat. Um, it's been really fun to kind of sit down and share that story with our audience. So thanks so much for carving out some time from your day and sitting down and, and, and chatting with us for the last hour. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, boy.
3: William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey & Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey & Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.